Amen. Jason, thank you for your gift of musical leadership today. My daughter is really in love with the stars right now. I hope that you had a good holiday season. We, we did in the Gilliland household. During Christmas week, my, my grandparents were here from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, staying with my parents. We got to spend Christmas Day with all of them and my brother and his girlfriend. And um, Andy became the proud new owner of a telescope. Uh, now, it's not the Hubble, all right? It's like a travel size, take it when you go camping kind of telescope. Uh, it's her first one, and she's five. I think we can start you know, start small, right? Um, but she's really in love with space and with the stars. She got a, uh, a, a NASA onesie, uh, which is the cutest thing ever. Uh, she got these constellation books and a, another book on astronomy. And she was so excited that night to go out and look at the stars with her brand new telescope. And so I got it all fixed up for her, got all the right lenses in place. I, Jupiter was in the sky that night. I found it was this tiny little dot that you could see in the sky, but I got it lined up and I got the you know, heavier zoom on there. I was pretty proud of myself because, you know, I, I'd gotten Jupiter into this telescope. That's not an easy thing to do if you've ever used a telescope before. I said, Andy, the telescope's ready. She goes, really? Yes, let's go look at Jupiter. Really, Jupiter? Yes, let's get out there and look. She goes up there and she looks and she starts to cry because Jupiter was now, instead of just a tiny little white dot in the sky, it was a slightly less tiny white dot inside of her telescope. She wasn't able to see like Jupiter, right? She wanted to be able to like wave hello to the people living on Jupiter. She didn't really understand the concept of what this travel size telescope was gonna provide for her in retrospect. We should have prepared her a bit more for that. So there were tears on our Christmas. Um, then of course, you know, we had a little talk and she, okay, and she realized it was, it was pretty cool and we would be looking at the moon the next night, something a little bit bigger than little tiny Jupiter. That was our experience with stargazing this Christmas. Um, today we're going to take a look at a story about some stargazers. We remember them in, in music as the three kings, but that's actually nowhere to be found in scripture. They're, they're magi, they're, they're, they're stargazers, they're Zoroastrian priests perhaps. And, and in the Gospel of Matthew, it's these three characters, these wise ones, who are the surprising locators, discoverers, revealers of the Christ child to all the world. And what we'll find in the story this morning, I hope, is that the path that they walk to and then from the Christ child is a path that we would be wise to walk as well as those living in this Epiphany Sunday space, this, this post-holidays, where do we go from here kind of season. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So for reference, in chapter 1 of Matthew, we get this long litany of names, this ancestry from Abraham to David to Jesus. And then we're given this very brief vignette of the birth of Christ, where an angel appears to Joseph and, and instructs Joseph to stay with Mary, even though he's confused. And, and then Mary gives birth. And then immediately, I mean, we're talking within a paragraph of Matthew's narrative, we see this. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise ones from the east came to Jerusalem. 
The word there, we're going to pause for a moment. I promise I won't have something to say after every single verse in the story this morning. But this one's important because to understand their identity is a critical part of understanding their path to Christ. So the word there for wise ones or magi is magoi in Greek. And it was simply a, a word that could be used most generally to describe astrologers, which was a, a widely received scientific practice back then, right? Not astronomy, but astrology, that wisdom could be discerned from the night sky. But more specifically, it was likely referring to Zoroastrian priests from Persia. That land of the east could have been Persia, modern-day Iran. And, and in those days, there was this very popular religion called Zoroastrianism that had a home there, and it was a religion uh, based upon astrology and, and discerning wisdom, uh, sacred wisdom from the night sky and from constellations. And so it, it, it's within the realm of possibility. In fact, most scholars agree that's likely the kind of people that Matthew's referring to as these Zoroastrian priests. Now, that's an interesting point to make when you consider who Matthew is and, and who Matthew's gospel is for. Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish gospel. And by that, what I mean is Matthew is writing for a people who understand and know the Jewish tradition and are looking for a Jewish Messiah. He's writing for his people in his place of, of the first century Jewish people. That's why his, his gospel begins with an ancestry from Abraham to David to Jesus. If you don't care about Jewish tradition, that's a really boring way to start a story, right? Let me tell you a story about the most important person who ever lived. Oh, wait, let me tell you all 87,000 generations that got to him first, right? You're like, this is the worst story starting ever. Uncle, please hurry it up, right? You, you were there for that storytelling time at the holidays this year. Matthew's gospel is for a very Jewish tradition kind of people. And so isn't it interesting that the people that Matthew chooses to show us to the Christ child, the people that Matthew says are the ones who discover and then point the rest of the world to this amazing revelation of the Jewish Messiah are not Jewish priests. They're not rabbinical scholars. They're not Jewish at all. They come from a distant land and they practice a distant religion. Isn't it interesting that these interfaith interlopers are the ones that Matthew chooses to say, they see it. Do you see what they see? It helps me to understand that, that in the life of faith and in the Christian tradition, uh, you know, sometimes I think we get it mixed up where we think that we have to leave behind pieces of who we are, pieces of us that are good, that have in fact perhaps even led us to the good news of Jesus Christ in order to then step into relationship with Christ. And yet, isn't it true that so frequently we bring so much of who we are, our culture, our backgrounds, our beliefs, ourselves, into the Christian faith and tradition? Sometimes we don't recognize this. It's very easy for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants to not recognize this. But as someone who has been able to have the, the luxury of serving alongside Tongan congregations from South Pacific Island of Tonga, or from uh, West African refugees from Liberia uh, who formed a, a, a fellowship at a former church that I served, or, or Zimbabwean political asylum seekers who formed a Zimbabwean community, or serving with white Anglo-Saxon Protestants from Texas and America. One thing I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt is, is so much of what we hold as Christianity is actually kind of the stew this holiday stew of cultures and beliefs and practices and parts of ourselves that come into this thing. 
I think it's important for Matthew's gospel to begin with Zoroastrian priests discovering the good news of Jesus Christ because it's not like they stopped being Zoroastrian priests just because they found Jesus. They were just Zoroastrian priests who found Jesus, right? That says something theological that we ought not miss. The path of the Magi begins here. It begins with us joining the story as the Magi do. Because God invites all that we are into this story. There's not one way to be someone that discovers Jesus. There's not one way to be someone who leaves the manger either. If the Magi can be the ones in Matthew's gospel who find Jesus first, then all of us can be invited into the story, and not just all of us, but all that we are as well. So the story continues in verse 2. So they, they come to Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Now that's a really funny question to ask of King Herod, right? These magi walk into the palace and they go, oh, King Herod, nice to meet you. By the way, do you know where the king's at? Like It's supposed to be funny, right? They're asking the king where the king is. King Herod clearly does not take too kindly to this. We've observed his star at its rising. We've come to pay him homage, they said. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, wouldn't you be? And all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together the chief priests and the scribes, the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So King Herod pulls in all the religious power players in Jerusalem. Say, okay, where is this so-called king supposed to be born? They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it had been written by the prophet, and here they quote Isaiah, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Matthew will go on later in this chapter to also quote Hosea and also Jeremiah, connecting Jesus' story back to the, the prophecies of old. Again, this is a very Jewish Messiah for a very Jewish people, for a very Jewish gospel. Even more interesting that the Magi begin the story this way. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me words so that I may also go and pay him homage. Yeah, right. King Herod has no intent on paying homage to anybody. King Herod is set on getting rid of this threat to his throne. Right Now, spoiler alert, at the end of the story that we'll read this morning, the Magi don't go back to King Herod. And instead, what's going to happen is Herod, being unable to find Jesus himself, will instead open this new decree that all firstborn sons are to be killed. Similar to the opening story of Moses' story, if you'll remember in Exodus, when Pharaoh has a similar decree with the Hebrew children. Again, this is a very Jewish story for a very Jewish people and a very Jewish gospel. This is a dark and dangerous time. This isn't warmth by the fire and Christmas cookies and watching Jingle All the Way for the twelfth time. This is scary. This is fear-inducing. And this is when the Magi keep searching. 
When they heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them, it says, went the star that they had seen at its rising. So they're following literally this, this moving star. It's meant to sound kind of supernatural. You know, some scholars will try to figure out, oh, I wonder what they saw in the sky. Maybe it was when Jupiter and Saturn aligned. I, I, that's fine. Speculation's great. But I think it's meant to sound kind of narrative and supernatural in that way. I don't know that the author is trying to make us see something realistic. There's this star that they're following, and it's moving in the sky until suddenly it says that it stops. It stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy overwhelmed with joy. That's an interesting word to use there. There's a lot of emotions they could have felt in that moment. They could have felt fear. That's an emotion that a lot of people in the Christmas stories that are told in our Gospels feel, right? When the angels appear to anybody, they're terrified, right? Wouldn't you be? They don't feel fear. They could have felt um, awe, perhaps. The star finally stopped. Wow. They could have felt anxiety because now they know they found this child that King Herod, they, they think, may want to kill. But the word that is used there is this sense of joy. I think it's important for the Magi to lead us to a place of, of joy in their path because I fear that, that too many people invest themselves, and I've done this in my life too, in a faith that does not expect joy in the night. I think it's important to hold a faith where we can expect or even demand to find joy in the night. And I'm not talking about a literal night. I'm talking about those kinds of nights when you feel like the world is closing in around you, that season, when it just feels like there's nothing but darkness, where you feel that there is a threat around every corner, where there is a Herod oppressing you and your people. And there's a star in the sky. There's a pinprick of light. It looks like the little tiny dot that's a little less small in the telescope of my daughter. And you see it there. And the closer you get to it, the more it moves. But here's what I don't want. I don't want a faith that says, be satisfied with that. Be satisfied with the hope that one day you might experience joy. And when I say joy, I'm not talking about circumstantial happiness. I'm talking about deep-seated, soul-rooted joy that can't be robbed by any certain day-to-day -day ongoings, that can't be taken away based on how my Tuesday morning went. Right? I want a faith that says that if I keep holding that star in view, if I follow it, even as it moves, I can expect that at some point that star will stop. Even if it's over something as simple as the birth of a child to a nondescript family in the poor part of town. But I can find something simple in this life that can bring me great joy. And my faith can lead me there. I don't, I don't want a faith that says life without joy is all there is. I don't want a faith that says, I guess you're just in the night. There's nothing more than that. That's nihilism. I don't want that. I think what, Ma what Matthew's trying to make clear to us through the gift of the Magi is that when we follow that moving star, as frustrating as it may be, there is a promise that that star will stop. And even if it's over something that appears at first to be simple, we might find a deep-seated joy in that moment, and our faith could lead us there. So the Magi lead us to follow the star and to search for joy in the night. Maybe you're in a season of what feels like night right now. 
And I don't know where the star will stop for you. But I trust that we have a faith and a God who will lead us there in time. So what they find there, it says on entering the house, and we talked on Christmas Eve how it's not really a stable as we see in the nativity, said they would have been in a family home in Bethlehem, some distant cousin of Joseph in the spare room that the animals would sleep in at night. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. I guess Joseph was out getting milk or something. I don't know where he is. And they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chest, they offered him three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold was a gift commonly given for kings. Frankincense was like a perfume or an incense, and it was associated with gods, a gift that you would offer to a god. That's why it was waved in, temp in temples, worship. And then myrrh was like an anointing oil that would be offered on the burial of a loved one. So these three gifts, the Magi, in the second chapter of Matthew, these far-off distant priests of a different religion are offering the gifts that show that they know who Jesus is. Their faith has led them to this child that they are hailing as king. They are worshiping as God, and they know will lead them from death into life. Before Peter or anybody else can make any sort of enunciation, the Magi get it. Do you see what they see? And then it says in verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. So these gifts that they've given, king and God and death to life, these gifts that they've given are immediately put to the test. It's as though the spirit meets them and says, okay, I, I understand that you think you know, but are you ready to live like you know? And they take a different path as a result. You know, Matthew's gospel, Joseph's, Joseph, Mary's husband, is the first to follow God's leading when the angel visits him. But the Magi are close behind. It occurs to me this week reading the story that, that Luke's gospel, by comparison, seems to be really concerned that, mass, that messages are received and then believed. The message received by Zechariah or by Elizabeth or by Mary, the important thing there is that they are believed within their heart, within their mind. But in, in Matthew's gospel, it's not simply enough to be believed, but that messages be heard and then followed. Believing not just with your heart, but with your feet. It's what happens with Joseph in telling him to stay with Mary. It's what happens with the Magi in telling them to take a different path. The greatest gift that the Magi bring to Jesus is not, in fact, an item at all, but it's their willingness to follow God's leading, even into mystery, even into unknown, even when a star is not guiding their path. Gift giving is a funny thing, isn't it? Sometimes the gifts that we think we're giving are the most important thing, and they turn out not to be. You know, in our house this past holiday season, a lot of gifts were exchanged. Reagan and I were pretty pumped about some of the gifts we gave Andy and Jude. You know, telescope, not a small thing. NASA onesie, I wish I had one of those. All these books. I mean, Jude is so into Elmo right now. He, my son literally calls colors by the name of the Sesame Street character. I think he's going to go to kindergarten still calling red Melmo and yellow Dida, which is Big Bird, if you speak Jude. Um, but out of all the gifts that we gave, package after package after package, you don't want to know, do you want to know what the most popular, what the most beloved thing was received this, this Christmas season? 
It was a box of 44 packets of Kirkland brand Costco popcorn, microwavable popcorn that my son received. When he opened this box, I got it at Costco on a whim as a joke, like literally two days before Christmas. I wrapped it up. Reagan said, that is the dumbest thing you've ever done. Why are you wrapping up a bag of microwavable popcorn? I said, because I know my son, right? He opens this box up. His eyes light up. He, he tries to lift it. He can't because it's so heavy. And he starts demanding popcorn at 8.15 in the morning on Christmas morning. And he sat there and ate a bowl. He didn't open any other gifts. He did not care. In that moment, it was not Christmas. It was popcorn day, right? Gifts are like a hollow, almost farce thing at times, aren't they? And the holiday season can feel kind of hollow and empty after it passes. We just came back from Kansas City two days ago, and there's an, a melancholy that sets in when you've loaded the car back up and you're driving home after the week spent with family. And I think a lot of us can leave this holiday season with that sense of kind of melancholy of where do we go from here? What comes next? Oh, good. January and February, everyone's two favorite months of the year, right? If you've got seasonal depression like I do, yeah, buckle up, take that vitamin D. It's going to be good. Imagine the Magi were wondering, where do we go from here as well? They had that same wondering. They didn't have a star to follow like they did before. They weren't going to listen to the local king like they had lived their lives doing. Instead, all they have to go off of is the whisper of a spirit in the night saying, take this path instead. And that one choice, that decision to trust in the Spirit's movement, to take a different path, to live differently than they had been living before, that one decision opens up the whole rest of the story. I think it's an important reminder for us that our life itself is the greatest gift that we've been given and the greatest gift that we have to give. And how we choose to give that life is important. It's the new year. I know we're all making resolutions or we're pretending to, right? And we're all thinking about the decisions we want to make this next year. And I'm not going to sit up here and, and preach a sermon about, here's the five resolutions you need to live to, to have a more purpose-filled Christian life. No, what I am going to say is to, to look at life intentionally. And to recognize that the, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, that's not the gift the Magi brought. With the, the gift the Magi brought was a listening to the Spirit and a choosing of a different path and an offering of their own lives in a way that felt intentional and made a difference. And so the third part of the Magi path, as we leave the manger scene, as we step into the unknown and the mysterious night sky has no star to follow, the gift of the Magi says to live life in the Spirit, to listen for those whispers in the night, to trust the dreams that God places before you, and to take steps of faith that go beyond believing in the heart, but believing with our feet. Live in the Spirit, the Magi say, because life is a gift, and so we should give it well. And so what do we do? Following a season of gift-giving, we look to the example of the Magi whose wisdom continues to speak volumes to us today. We offer ourselves in service to a newfound king. We worship a precious God, and we walk in the path that leads us all from death into life. One of the practices in the Methodist church in the Wesleyan tradition comes from John Wesley, the, the, the first Methodist, as it were. Didn't know he was starting a denomination, and yet here we are. And he, he wrote this prayer called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. And it's one that Methodists uh, around the world will recite on New Year's Day. And yeah, it's January 2nd, but we're close enough. Right? 
And so today, to close our time and to move us from sermon to table of communion, I think it is fitting that the path of the Magi has led us here to a path of covenant, renewed covenant with God. A covenant that says that that my life is a gift that I offer to you and that I trust that you, God, will steward well and offer to others. And so you'll see the words on your screen, whether you're here in the room or you're online, and I invite you wherever you are to recite these words aloud. Even if you're like on a city bus right now, let people around you think you're weird. That's okay. That's okay. They can handle it. But these are words that we come to year after year. This is a contemporized version of it, so we don't use the thines and thous. But I think that way we also know what we're committing to. I invite you to read this with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator and redeemer and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. And let all God's people say, amen.